Hello, and welcome to We Talk, a podcast that explores the role of Waldorf education in helping children, parents, and families thrive in an ever changing world. We Talk is brought to you by Shining Mountain Waldorf School, and this is your host, Nita June Devonzo. Hello, and welcome, dear We Talk listeners, to this next episode. Today, I interview Dr. Adam Blanning, an anthroposophical doctor. And for those of you who are not familiar with anthroposophical medicine, you will learn a great deal more today. Dr. Blanning was himself a Waldorf graduate and went on to further his studies first in literature And then he moved into the field of medicine to then deepen his knowledge and expand his practice into anthroposophical medicine. I hope you enjoyed today's show and thank you so much for being here. Welcome, Dr. Adam Blanning. Thank you so much for being with me on this episode of We Talk. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm happy to have a conversation. Yeah. So my first question for you today, which came first in your life, Waldorf education or anthroposophic medicine, or perhaps we could even uh, put in there anthroposophy, which came first? So I would say in terms of consciousness, um, certainly Waldorf education came first. But I went to a Waldorf school growing up. Um, my mother is a longtime Waldorf teacher and mentor. And I would say at some point in high school and then going into college, I really, really liked people who were involved in Waldorf education. And I knew that there was something different because um, I, I went to a public high school and then at, at college, you just sort of notice that there are different ways of thinking about the world. Um, and out of that curiosity about who were all of these people and why were they involved in these things, then, then I started learning about anthroposophy generally. And then I did know that there existed such a thing as anthroposophic medicine when I was in high school but I didn't know of it as more than sort of something that existed and sounded interesting, no specifics. And for our listeners who still might not know any specifics about anthroposophic medicine, might you describe and define it for us? Absolutely. I would say, well, well, firstly, anthroposophic medicine is celebrating 100 years just like Waldorf Education is celebrating 100 years in 2020. So that's very exciting. Um, Anthroposophic medicine is really meant to be a kind of extension, an enlarging and an elaboration of regular medical training. And then I I would say we could put it into a couple of different categories. It's, It's hard to capture from just one viewpoint maybe a little bit like Waldorf education. Um, One being that there is a a very conscious way of trying to observe um, healing and illness as process. 
which is different than a lot of the ways that I was taught in regular medical school. And maybe one of the big ways that we can see a distinction is trying to understand if a process is happening, let's say a flu, then you try to know what are the parts of the illness which are causing a problem and which are the ones that are actually part of the body's response and the immune system's tools for working through things. So it, it gives you a differentiated lens. Because if we take something like flu, fever is actually a really important tool. And if we just say, oh, when I have a flu, I want to get rid of all of the symptoms that I have, that might help me short term. Um, but I may actually be prolonging the way that the body really recovers. So I would say process is one aspect. Another is really trying to incorporate a lot of diverse tools, medicines. So there's uh, a lot of herbal medicine. There's some homeopathic treatments. There's movement treatments. There's artistic therapies. There's really a lot of different ways to support somebody. And then maybe the third aspect is, is really trying to bring a spiritual view into medicine. Recognizing that we are more than just a particular diagnosis or a particular organ or a particular problem. And what's the meaning with the illness? And, and how do we acknowledge that and support it? Which I think that exists in medicine a lot, but maybe not quite as consciously. And, and sometimes when you talk about spirituality, that gets a little, a little woo-woo for some people. Um, but really recognizing that the meaning and the morality of what we're doing and what we're experiencing is very important. So sort of those three areas. Excellent. Thank you. Clear. Um, I was going to say clear definition. And then in some ways, I think, um, that might come from me being a Waldorf student. <laughs> Noting, noting the clarity of it in my understanding of what you are speaking to, and perhaps there might be some questions um, still for others. But, but on to my next question. As a Walter student yourself growing up, did you know that you wanted to pursue medicine? Um, or when did this life calling become clear to you? It sort of had two stages. One is that when I think I was about nine, I was really interested in medicine. I, I had a lovely pediatrician that I grew up with and was very impressed with him. And so I thought about it at that time. And then it sort of melted away, mostly because it was too much school. And I was actually gonna study architecture. That was what I applied to going into college. And then, that changed and I ended up becoming an English literature major um, and thought about teaching humanities and said, well, gosh, I'd need a PhD for that. And that's a lot of school and I could be a medical doctor. And so it was kind of circuitous. I, I had to explore a couple different ways, but it, it's always been, I would say since age nine, it's, it's been there as a real possibility. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. Yeah. And then when did the additional piece of focus, the focus on anthroposophical medicine come into your mind and heart and being? Yeah. Well, I would say part of it was knowing that there were people practicing anthroposophic medicine. I did have chances to interface with them at different times. I was very lucky that during my medical school training, a very experienced anthroposophic doctor, Philip Nkeo, moved to the city where I was living and studying here in Denver. And so he had a study group that met once a week. And whenever I could, I would go to that study and it was just great to be practicing thinking about things in a different way. And then actually the, the more earnest study of it didn't happen until I had finished all of my training. And then there are training courses that you can go to, uh, which are specifically designed for people who have completed other medical training to learn more about anthroposophic perspectives. And it's great fun that now I actually get to teach and help organize some of those training programs. In the history of that, so you noted that this um, well-known anthroposophic doctor arrived in Denver and you had the ability to study with him. Was it harder to find individuals from whom to learn when you were initially learning? And transversely, is it easier today? Are there more opportunities and options um, for study and for learning about anthropo anthroposophic medicine? There are more opportunities, yes. Mm -hmm. there, there are more, more organized programs. I would say as part of the development that 40 years ago, if you wanted to learn anthroposophic medicine, you moved to Europe and you lived there and worked in some of the anthroposophic hospitals for some people six months or a year or two years. Uh, that, that's a pretty high bar to say you have to learn German and go and study somewhere. But enough people did that, that then there was really a, a wonderful, I would say still pioneering movement in the US so that there were more people you could go and mentor with and then that mentoring, probably now about 20 years ago, became formal courses. And now it's, it's quite exciting. There are actually training courses for doctors all around the world. I think there are about 30 different training programs and they share curriculum. So it's, it's gotten much easier. Wonderful. Yeah. That's amazing to me. I had not known of the existence of anthroposophic hospitals. And to me, that speaks of, well, one, the history of, of course, of Waldorf education, that it is more um, well known and established in Europe. Um, but also, you know, alternative medicines are um, more, or have been embraced for a longer period of time in Europe, indeed. Which leads me to my next question, just in being an alternative medicine practitioner, even though here in the in the West, you know, in North America, alternative approaches are more and more um, accepted and appreciated. What for you have been possibly some of the challenges um, that you faced as bringing this 
alternative approach to healthcare and wellness in, you know, in the time that you've been practicing? Sure. sure. Well, when I finished my training, I, I actually worked for several years teaching at a couple of different medical schools, first in New York, and then I came back to Colorado and taught for another two and a half or three years at the University of Colorado, teaching family medicine, which was a wonderful experience, really enjoyed being in that learning environment, uh, the diversity of what you're doing, people really trying to be thoughtful about what they're doing. Uh, I would say even in that kind of environment, it was hard to try to bring a different way of thinking. Which you could do in little bits. But as an example, I remember teaching people and within anthroposophic medicine, you could think about something like I mentioned process before. So sometimes there will be a particular process, which is how our body wants to react. And let's say the reaction is a cramp. So somebody might complain that when they wake up early in the morning, they get a Charlie horse in their calf and these hurt incredibly and they have to get out of bed and walk around and it's really, really painful that would be a cramp in a muscle. If we take that same process, we might look at the digestive system and somebody gets stomach cramps, or somebody might have very, very bad menstrual cramps with part of, as part of their cycle. If we go to the lungs, we could think of asthma as being a kind of cramping illness. If we go more to our, our thought, and regulating sleep and things like that, sometimes you get an idea that won't let go. And it's really, really hard to go to sleep. We can almost say, gosh, that's a kind of thought cramp. And teaching in a regular medical setting, you would do a separate medication for every single one of those problems. Where from an anthroposophic perspective, sometimes you're lucky and you it's not just lucky, actually, it's, it's a lot of truth, too. <laughs> if you start looking, you can often see, oh, there's a particular pattern of imbalance that each one of us has. It's not really whether we have it, it's sort of which one. And sometimes you can give a treatment and it will help balance multiple things at the same time. And that kind of thinking was hard to convey in a uh, university setting. So when I made a transition to doing my own independent anthroposophic practice, a lot of people said, gosh, it's, it's too bad you're going. Um, I'm really kind of surprised that you just want to teach people about nutrition. Because that was sort of, when you talk about natural medicines, that, that was about as far as their understanding could go. So I would say the biggest challenge has been trying to develop the right words and the right examples and perspectives to just try to demonstrate and, and help somebody follow a different way of thinking. Yeah. And then 
I, I would say if there's one more hurdle, it's that in Europe and also more and more in South America, in countries like Brazil, there's a way that these kinds of perspectives and treatments are able to find good development within the broader health system so that there are hospitals and there are public health nurses who are trained in anthroposophic treatments. And uh, the U.S. isn't there right now. So it will be lovely when that's possible because I, I think there can be a, a huge development and uh, really a very generous sharing of these things, which is not quite there yet. Yeah, I'm saying when, I'm not saying if. May that day come. <laughs> yeah, yes, I love that. Thank you. I will hold that vision with you. Speaking of sharing the information and finding the right words for um, talking about healing and wellness in a different way through the words of anthroposophy. You have authored many articles on anthroposophic medicine and you've also authored a book. Can you share with us a bit about the focus of the book and what prompted you specifically um, you to delve into deeper on that so specific I, I would say a lot of that work book. probably comes from being an English lit major and being interested in communicating ideas, but the book really focuses on trying to find these, these perspectives on how to help children in their development. Uh, the name of the book is Understanding Deeper Developmental Needs. And it's a book that really arose through first trying to work with Waldorf schools, being in classrooms and doing observations of children, where it's rare that a teacher asks you to come and just look at a beautiful, healthy child and admire how well they're thriving. Usually there's a concern. Somebody is having trouble paying attention. Somebody is disruptive. Somebody doesn't seem to remember what happens. And out of that work, I started really trying to study what within anthroposophic medicine are called constitutional polarities, which are different aspects of development that instead of there being a normal and an abnormal, there's sort of a whole spectrum. And everybody is somewhere on that spectrum. And it becomes difficult if you're very far on one edge or the other. So it, one of the things that really was exciting for me is learning about a, a constitutional polarity, which is about how we take in information. And one of the ways that it's described is that somebody can either be distracted or inattentive. And if I'm inattentive, that means I'm, I'm really captured with my own thoughts. I'm not taking in the outside world too much. So that might be a child who's described as kind of dreamy or not so wakeful 
often very, very imaginative. And if the teacher's doing something at the front of the classroom, I may not be able to notice what they're saying. It doesn't penetrate in. On the other side would be a distracted process where I'm actually taking in so many things from the outside world that it's hard to prioritize them. And I might be listening to the teacher at the front of the classroom, but I'm probably also noticing how my neighbor is digging in their desk and I'm noticing the traffic outside driving by uh, and I'm noticing that my sock is tucked a little bit funny into my left foot or my left shoe. Uh, and there are just lots and lots of impressions coming. And I went, in my own mind, I suddenly realized, oh, this is ADHD. This is somebody who's having trouble paying attention, but it's for completely different reasons. And that got me really excited. So then I started trying to understand more about these different constitutional polarities and taught them to different Waldorf school teachers, taught them to other physicians and started writing things. And at a certain point when you've written enough, you say, well, this could be a book. So it took about seven years, but that's, that's what came together in that book. Well done. Wow. And where can our listeners go to um, get the book if they're interested in purchasing it? That one, probably the easiest way is actually through Amazon or Barnes and Noble. You can look for Adam Blanning. Yep. And you've spoken a little bit just about, um, yeah, in a, in, in, we could call it in an in aha moment or aha moments there that prompted the writing of the, this book. Um, perhaps you could share with us a few other stories or experiences that you've had um, of working with children and supporting them to blossom into their fullest pot potential um, through your through your care and support. Sure, sure. If if there's an overarching theme there, I would say some of the the best successes have really been about trying to understand the, the order of how we feel comfortable out, about engaging in something new. Because there, there are different developmental steps like potty training, like being able to go to sleep by yourself. Like being able to interact with other children. Where there's, we, we, we need the capacity to be able to do it, but we also need the comfort to sort of take that step forward. I mentioned when you ask about being interested in medicine, I, I mentioned that it, when I, that it happened when I was about nine years old. And that's a really interesting time when children become more self-aware of their individuality and they very often get very scared. And I think it's because they realize that they're really their own people 
and they're independent from parents and teachers. And they very frequently worry about robbers and tornadoes or tsunamis or illness or death. Those are probably the top five or seven. <laughs> um, and it's also a really beautiful time because that's when a child's moral sense starts to come forward, that they can really see the other person as an individual. And so it's a time of a lot of stress because a lot of kids are worried about and people think that they have an anxiety disorder, but really they're making a big change. And there are ways to support them with anthroposophic medicines to help them have a little bit more courage, more calm orientation, more security. And they don't really need an anxiety medicine. They, they just need to find a new way of being. So I love seeing very anxious nine-year-olds <laughs> and talking with their parents. Um, I also get to see a lot of children who have different kinds of sensory processing disorder. Um, I see children with tics and obsessive compulsive problems and stool holding and um, movement delays and speech delays. And so I, I see a lot of things where there's a little bit of a hindrance somewhere. And you can always say, well, come on, just get on with it. But, but there are ways, to, I think, to really warm and welcome someone to be able to accomplish the process themselves. Um, it, it, this may seem like a totally simple or ridiculous even example, but something like kids who hold their stool, which tends to be boys more than girls, because I think boys can learn to pee standing up and it just becomes this battle. They don't want to poop on the potty. But if you just start having them sit on the potty with the hot water bottle on their lap once a day, then it becomes not so scary. And then you can take the next step. Um, of course, you can give somebody a laxative and make it so they have to poop a lot. But if we can do the welcoming step first, um, then I think things blossom in a different way. So the, those, are, those are nice examples. I see lots of adults too. Um, and I would say with adults, the most exciting times are when somebody is really ready to find a new way of being. Kind of thresholds of, I want to approach this illness in a new way, or I, I suddenly have a new priority, um, and that the anthroposophic medicines are helpful guides in that process, but they're not really going to do the whole thing for you. So those are all exciting. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing those stories. We parents, children, young, old, everyone across the entire world right now, of course, are in this pandemic um, of the coronavirus. 
what might be some advice that you um, might wish to share or remind us all for optimal health and well-being during this time? Well, something I've been thinking about recently and, and have talked to multiple people about just actually has to do with the fact that usually summer is a time when we breathe out and relax and dissolve and go on vacation. And very few people had the chance to do that this summer. And then there's this stage at the end of summer and now coming into the fall where you feel like you really need to get organized and make a plan and have everything in place. And I would say these are kind of soul movements in terms of their, their predictable ways that we want to react every year. And maybe in February, it doesn't feel like you'll be relaxed in June, but by the time June comes, usually you just want to forget everything. <laughs> um, and then every fall, in June, it might not feel like you ever want to be organized, but every fall, everybody wants to get organized. And so I think we all have an inner longing to do that. And yet everything is still completely unknown and unpredictable in so many realms of life. So one idea for promoting health is to recognize that and wrestle with it some, but not give away too much energy. Because worry sure takes a lot of energy. In terms of immunity, I, I really try to take clues from the body. And if somebody is on the edge of getting sick, then it can be really helpful to put them to bed early to take protein out of their diet, to dress them really warmly. These are very simple things. But I find them to be really a good support because if you get sick enough, your body's gonna put you in bed. It's gonna give you a fever. It's gonna change your appetite so you don't wanna eat anything heavy. And if you feel yourself on the edge of getting something, go home, go to bed an hour earlier, skip protein. Uh, sometimes in my family, people laugh a little bit because I will go to bed with a couple layers of pajamas and sometimes even a hat. Um, but I really create a lot of warmth. And being around somebody who's sick a lot, that works quite often. Is I can say, oh, I'm getting a little scratchy or a little tired or a little grumpy. And so I just need to give the body that extra support. And I think if we can look ahead towards that, again, this is part of this process of what does the body need to accomplish what it knows is a healthy process, then I think that makes us more resilient. So in some ways, it's, it's almost allowing yourself a little bit of the sickness or the recovery time so that you can be back. Um, when we get sick and we jump back right into things, we usually don't have much buffer. And I see that with little kids a lot, that they, they got sick, they were just well enough to go back. So they jump back in 
and then 10 days later they're sick again because their buffer wasn't really there and they got too tired. And this year feels like a time where if, if we can surrender a little bit of the outside world and that worry, it's really healthy to find those spaces. Thank you. Excellent advice. Good reminders. <laughs> and I appreciate the, um, just the reminder too of, you know, the big picture or the rhythm of the year and um, just that release into it. You know, so much of that, you said that that worry, um, the energy that goes into that worry or the energy that goes into the, the not going as you're, as you're noting, you know, with the flow of actually how one's feeling. And yeah, if you're feeling ill, take care of yourself. <laughs> That's simple reminders, but we so often forget. Take the time. Take care. Yeah, little kids are really good because they're, they're still a, very much a whole being. But if you really stress out a small kid, they're going to show you, they're going to fall apart, they're going to get sick. And, and with time and experience, um, it's easier to compartmentalize, which is good for some things, but it, it risks that we can get pretty out of balance in one place without really knowing it. Um, so I, I think trying to bring those pieces back together, that's really important for this year. And I, I'm just sort of taking taking it for granted that most people right now are pretty tired and kind of anxious. Probably true. <laughs> so, so we all need to be doing this more because next summer won't come until the summer. So uh, heading into the fall and the winter to create this extra warmth and maybe one additional thought is I mentioned eating less protein or less heavy foods in terms of a, a nutritive diet, but also just being aware of our sensory diet. And where's the balance between feeling connected and where does it just become unnourishing? Zoom meetings included, emails. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. Where, where, where is it enough? Where's my yeah, stomach? What full? is nutritious and nurturing to me, and what is just junk? <laughs> junk food. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Mm. Thank you so much, Adam. I so appreciate your time and your wisdom and your experience and sharing it with us. For our listeners who would like to learn more about you, what is your website where they might be able to contact you? Uh, my website is denvertherapies.com. Just one Denver word, denvertherapies.com. Excellent. Well, yeah, and if anybody's curious about anthroposophic medicine or they know somebody who might be interested in it, because I'm always fishing for the next the next Anthroposophic Doctors, um, you can go to anthroposophicmedicine.org. There's good information there. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Nita.
Have a wonderful rest of your day. You Take too. Care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to We Talk, brought to you by Shining Mountain Waldorf School and hosted by Nita June Navanzo. We Talk is made possible because of listeners like you who invest in the production of the show. Share your appreciation for what you've heard today. Help us explore the value of Waldorf education and preparing our children for the future by going to patreon.com forward slash We Talk Podcast. If you'd like to be interviewed, have a suggestion for an episode ahead, or simply wish to share feedback, please email us at wetalk at smwaldorf.org.